And let's look at um, John chapter 5. Uh, here we, we have again John's purpose in giving us this story, just like any other story that he's giving us, is to identify Jesus as the Son of God, the Messiah, and the King over all. Speaking of one day being the judge over all, okay? It's a big deal. He's portraying Jesus as that. And here we're going to learn that rather than a reception that Jesus will receive, he's going to begin receiving rejection and hostility from others. So this passage of scripture here in, in chapter 5 serves as somewhat of a hinge between the opening up of Jesus coming and being baptized and doing miracles and people welcoming him, here it's shifting. It's not what it's going to be, but it's kind of in between where they begin to persecute Jesus, leading up to his crucifixion, and where they actually plan how they're going to kill him, beginning in John 11. So from 5 to 10, it's this, these hinge verses. So we're opening up this right now. Uh, leading up until he's openly hated, openly rejected. So let's read this together, and we'll get to work. This is John 5, 1 through 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Basidia, which has five Ruth colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that, that man that said to me, Take up your bed and walk, it's him that told me to do this. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place, in the colonnades. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself logically equal with God. As we work this text, as we get into this text, I want you to consider something. I want you to consider three different types of dispositions, three different types of the arrangement of life or your soul's posture, three different ones that I see here and I think that we can learn from. First, there's the self-centered living. Secondly, there's a self-righteous living. And thirdly, there's a Christ-centered living. 
be considering and thinking through these different postures towards life. Because I want you to try to see where you may, may fit and find yourself resting. Because I believe we're all three more at home in one of those three than others. So let's be honest as we assess our hearts today. Self-centered living, self-righteous living, and Christ-centered living. We're going to see these three stand out. And I believe we have a setting, like a default setting. I believe we have a setting of our soul that is connected to one of these three types of dispositions. Our soul's posture. You know what I'm saying? Self-centered living, self-righteous living, Christ-centered living. Okay, let's pray. And uh, I want to ask Jesus to be seen as who he is, which was John's purpose. It's the Holy Spirit's purpose to put it in John's heart to give us this so that we could see Jesus. So I'm going to pray that we see Jesus this morning. Okay? That fun Jesus, that guy right there. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, um, we need you to come and be with us. I need you to supernaturally use the words and thoughts that were created on this text in sermon preparation to be delivered to these people for this day, this time. And Lord, I believe that you do nothing by accident and everything is on purpose as we see even here in this story. So Lord, I know and I take great comfort in knowing that your plan moves forward and that you have Everyone here in this place that needs to be here today, nothing weird happened to get someone here. This was all according to plan. May we know and see what your purpose is in having us in this room to hear this word preached today. God, please forbid us leaving unchanged, neutral, unmoved, Faithless, unbelieving. Work in us for our joy and our satisfaction and contentment and for your glory. Do what we can't do for ourselves. Open our eyes, open our ears, open the eyes of our hearts that we may see your truth. Open the ears of our hearts so we may hear your word and may it cause us to live differently. So supernatural, so miraculous, so needed. We need this. Help us. In Christ's name, amen. All right, let's get to work. Y'all ready? Yep. Yeah? You excited? Yes. Convincing, really convincing. On the edge of your seat in anticipation. I like it. Okay, here we go. Let's look at verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1. After this... All right, this is metatuta in the Greek. It's a word that basically means at this very moment, moving from previous months of time. So this is after possibly 16 months, maybe even 18 months. It's a chunk of time, but it came down to this moment. So it's like it's been between chapter 4 and 5, most likely close to a year and a half of time has passed. So we see Jesus being welcomed and greeted. Last time he was in Jerusalem that John lets us in on was the previous feast, the Passover. Remember when he came into Jerusalem last time? What did he do? Do you remember? He what? Yeah. Yeah, he cleaned out the temple, right? That wasn't exactly 
easy, and that wasn't exactly well received, remember? He chased everybody and everything out of the temple, turned over their tables. So there's been a growing hostility here. So after further months of him teaching and leading and gaining even more followers, we have this happen. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, most likely the Feast of Tabernacles, if you want to know that. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem, which was customary for the Jews to do this. We're, we're going to see here, this is the second miracle that John lets us in on in Jesus' second year. No, the only miracle in Jesus' second year. So we have year one, we see that in the first four chapters. Year two, this is it. And then year three, we're going to get to around chapter 11. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethsida or Bethsidia, which has five roof colonnades or porches like partial coverings, partial protection for, for the people. And in these lay a multitude, thousands of invalids, the sick, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. The sheep gate was basically a door in the wall that led into the, the sanctuary area, the temple area, where they would bathe the livestock before they came in to be ceremonially, ceremonially sacrificed. So that wasn't exactly nice water to begin with, okay? There's, there's dung off the animals. There's nastiness. There's hair floating. It's, it's not exactly something that you would want to go take a swim in, I don't think. Some of you might. Not me, okay? Uh, anymore, anyway. And so Basidia, you know, in the Greek is, is a house of mercy. It's a place of mercy which fits this type of setting. It's kind of like a place they gave to the very sick, the invalid, the, the lame, the paralyzed as a way of keeping them, having them a place of protection and a place for them to gather. The upper class and those who were seeking to keep themselves ceremonial, pure and righteous, if you will, would never, ever, under any circumstance, go to this type of place. They would avoid this at all costs. This was a disease-ridden rotting place. It was horrible. Even when the Jews, uh, the Jew, when, even when Jerusalem was destroyed sometime later, they did not destroy this place. Because John's writing this 20 years after Jerusalem was destroyed. And he says, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate. It's present tense. He's writing as if he could still see it. So as Jerusalem, the temple was destroyed and brought to crumbles, this place was still remaining as if to say, man, that is nasty. Like we don't even really want to destroy this place. It wasn't anything that you would ever want to venture towards. And we see here that this pool, the reason why people would gather around here is that people thought it had healing, therapeutic significance, that the water was special, that it had some sort of healing power. It was a pagan tradition. It was superstitious. But what it was, it was fed by like an intermittent spring that would surge and cause it to bubble or ripple. And people thought that they could go into the water and be healed whenever it would bubble. So this is why these sick people are gathering on this type of pool, okay? It's a superstitious way of getting healed. You notice in your Bibles, if you see there, you see verse 3 that starts, in these lay a multitude of invalids, right? And then you see verse 5, but do you see verse 4? Strange, huh? 
Like, I didn't get that until I started studying this text. I was like, where's verse 4? It's my favorite number. How does 4 get left out of this chapter? And I began to read and study and read some text criticism towards this. And, and what I learned basically is this. And this is verse 4. Okay, you ready? For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now do you see the significance of someone gathering at this pool who was sick? But why isn't this in our Bibles? First of all, this teaching is nowhere consistent with Scripture. This type of superstitious believing in this type of water, this type of healing agent. But what has happened in our earliest manuscripts... Okay? This is what I've all learned this week because, again, I didn't know this was m- missing. In our earliest manuscripts, what had happened is there was no mention of this whatsoever. It just went, if we had numbers in our manuscripts, it would just go 3-5. It wouldn't have 4 even anywhere in there. The concept wasn't there. And as these manuscripts were copied, it is believed that someone would handwrite in the margin why people would gather at this pool. And, and you can see in verse 7... I'll skip ahead there just for a second. Um, it says, the man answered, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And so it's believed that for sake of clarifying the superstition, that someone in transcribing the Bible put this in the margin. And then that got copied and it was put in the margin. That got copied and it was put in the margin. That got copied and someone put it in the text. So whenever they formulated this into the 1611, it was brought into Scripture. And that's why it's in the King James. If you have a King James Bible, you see no problem. You see verse 4 is right there. But all, almost all of our modern translations over the last 150 years, they have this verse omitted. They do not have this text in here. So just in case you were sending it like, I'm sending my Bible back. It doesn't have a verse 4. I'm missing out on something. No, you're not. It's not supposed to be there. I believe it is well and very good that it's not in the text. So, moving forward. Verse 5. There was a certain man, there was one man, a certain man who was there who had been an invalid, who had been sick, weak, most likely paralyzed or lame, for 38 years. The length of his sickness and illness underscores his hopelessness of his situation. Because no one in this era would be an invalid for this long. This was rare. To be 38, you saw thousands of your friends die. No one would really live as an invalid for this long. Though this man happened. This is not a parable. This really happened. But it just speaks of his hopelessness. 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, Jesus could have given you the years, months, weeks, days, hours, minutes, seconds, milliseconds as to how long he's been right there because he's sovereign. He knows everything. He's powerful. So he knew this man. He knew this man's history. He knew this man's past. He knew that he had already been there a long time. And he says to him, do you want to be healed? There's a lot going on right here. First observation that I have here is the compassion of Jesus Christ to go anywhere close to this place. 
this area was despicable, deplorable, nasty, disease-ridden. People were rotting. Thousands of people. Diseases were being shared. Leprosy. Nasty. And Jesus goes there and doesn't just show up to find a rookie. He finds someone who's been there for 38 years in his misery and his brokenness and his weakness and his limitations, his illness, his hopelessness. And Jesus finds that certain man. I love that. That is my Jesus, right? I love this guy. My second observation. Jesus knew this man, though this man didn't know Jesus. And even knowing him and his filth, Jesus pursues him anyway. This gives me hope over who I am, what I've done, my past my current thoughts and lack of belief, Jesus knows me and he pursues me. Incredible hope here. Incredible. I believe this is an incredible observation. Though this man didn't know Jesus, Jesus knew this man. He pursues him anyway. This gives us hope. This should give anyone hope regarding your past. If you have the thought of, yeah, but if he knew, blank. He knows and he's pursuing you anyway. That's why you're in this room. You're being pursued. You're being loved. He's finding the colonnade where you are, and he's finding that certain person speaking of you, and he's pursuing you. See this in the text. See this as you right here. Man, I wish we would all see this Jesus, this compassionate Jesus, the Jesus that takes pity on the sick and the weak and the miserable and the pitiful. This makes me excited. This says that anybody can get on this. He's not looking for anything. He's giving it to you. He's not asking you to meet a certain standard. He just wants to give himself to you. Receive him today. So here we have a redundant question. This is like a homeless man holding up a sign saying, hungry. And you're rolling up to the stoplight, rolling down your window. You hungry? This man's been there for 38 years, one of the oldest men there. And Jesus says, do you want to be healed? Why would he ask that question? It's almost insulting. Yeah? You feel that a little bit? Like, I mean, no, I'm fine. Life's great. What? I think he asked it for three possible reasons. One is to get this man's attention. You talk to a sick person about their illness, you'll talk. They'll talk. You want to really connect with somebody who's struggling with a disease? If you want to talk to my grandpa, talk to him about dementia, Alzheimer's, with my grandmother suffering through it. He'll talk to you for hours about it. You want to have someone's attention? Find someone who's got cancer. Talk to them. You'll have their attention. And they'll let you know all kind of stuff about their sickness. 
So certainly, I think he asked him this to get his attention. Secondly, I think that perhaps this man had lost hope and didn't even have the will to care anymore. So Jesus is honestly asking him to think internally, do I really want to be healed? Am I really even open to that? Or do I just think my life is almost over? I mean, like, what's the point in trying anything right now? And the third reason why I think Christ is asking this question is because he wanted to communicate love. The healer is asking him, you want to get better? I can help you. You want it? Let's look at the man's reaction. The sick man answered him, Sir, he knew that he was a rabbi, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going in, another steps down before me. This is a lonely man. Remember the lame man? I think it's in Mark, I want to say Mark 2. They opened the roof, and they dropped him down. Remember that story, kind of? That was a cool flannel graph story growing up. I remember that happening. But you, you see him, his friends lowering down, and that, it's their friend's faith that actually helps him become whole. If you read that, you'll see that. This man didn't have anybody to even carry him. This man was alone and miserable. Do you want to be healed? Answer, I have nobody to help me. <laughs> and Jesus is standing there. Open your eyes and see me. It's almost as if, let's say, uh, Jacob is the pool, okay? So this area over here is the pool. And let's say I'm, I'm the, the sick man laying on the ground. Here, only for illustration, is Jesus. Which is the word? It's not a stretch. Okay. And it's like he's laying here and he's saying, do you want to be healed? And the man says, Looking like if I could like just get to the pool, if I could, look, look, yeah, that right there, if I could just get down there. And it's like Jesus is trying to catch his eyes, saying, "No, I'm, I'm right here. I'm like you're looking for me. Like it, it's not that. It's you're missing it." He couldn't see past the mystery water. His number one goal in life, most likely for close to thirty-eight years was to be the first to that pool when it started bubbling. Because he'd heard rumors. If he could just be down there, he has nobody to carry him. Do you want to be healed? The natural answer is, yes, please. This man had no desperation. This man honestly was worn out of being sick. He was tired of being tired. He was sick of being sick. You want to be healed? Well, the only option that I have left is that water. I've been trying for 38 years to get down there. I don't have anybody to get me there. He didn't know who was standing before him. He didn't know that Jesus was there at creation. Like, I created all this, and you don't think I can... Really? I'm fully capable. I would have gone on this huge story about how wonderful I was. Jesus, let's look at Jesus. This man, 
looking at Jesus, didn't even know that he was the most powerful and loving person to ever walk on this planet. He didn't see Jesus as capable of squat. He did not observe anything special about Jesus. This man had zero faith. None. No faith. Zero. He was only broken, weak, and needy. And look at what Jesus does. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and be on your way. Wow. You want to be healed? Yeah, but the only option is down there. I can't get down there. Well, your problem is you're missing me. Peace out, brother. Walking off. What does he do? You want to be healed? Yeah, but only... Get up. Take up your bed, two commands in a row, with authority. Get up. Take up your bed and walk. Be on your way. The bed could merely be rolled up, made out of cotton and straw, very lightweight, be rolled up, put under his arm. Why did he need it? Why not show off the power and leave the dead behind and move forward in new life? It's because Jesus always has a plan. We're going to see why he carried that mat in just a little bit. You want to be healed? Yeah, but get up, roll up your mat. And walk. 38 years this man has been laying there. He's had so many different people come try to prove themselves on one of the more difficult people to heal. And he's been left disappointed. He's tried everything. He's drank anything possible. He has rubbed anything possible. He's tried quoting whatever it takes to quote. He's tried crawling. He's tried everything. He may have even tried over 38 years. You would think this would be possible. He might have even tried when someone tried this little gimmick of get up, take a bed, and walk. He actually tried him fall on his face. Maybe even breaking more bones. We don't know. I'm sure he's tried a ton of things. 38 years of this in a very superstitious pagan culture. And what does he do? Does he look at him and say, I don't know, man. I don't think it's possible. Does he say, uh, does, he, does he get up real slow, you know, kind of legs wobbly, like trying to, you know, get up? What's that like? What's it say in verse 9? And at once the man was what? Healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Jesus said, get up, take up your bed and walk. He took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was a Sabbath. That's the kicker. At once, the man was healed. John uses this word nine times. Last time he used it, it was with the woman at the well. He looks at the woman at the well and says, I am he. Because he was talking about the Messiah. The Messiah's coming one day. Or she was saying, the Messiah's coming one day. He's going to set everything straight. He's going to bring clarity to all my confusion. And he says, I am he. And immediately, this is chapter four. You can check it out. And immediately, the disciples were right there to see that happen. It was like right then, at that moment. Nine times he uses this. This is the second time that we see it here. 
The point is, as Jesus gave the command, the man immediately, no hesitation, no question, hops to his feet, rolls up his bed. He's gone before he even know who it was that healed him. No handshake, no business card, nothing. He's on his way. He's gone. I believe, as I see this, that this man didn't have an option. I see Jesus commanding here, and I just see Jesus with his words just speaking life and springing this man out of here. That's the way I see it. John wants everyone to know our long-awaited healer, king, rescuer is here. He has arrived. Isaiah 35, strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Look familiar? Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer. Get up, be on your way. Right there. John's pointing us to this long-awaited Messiah being here in the present and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. This is perfect redemption. This is absolutely changing our situation. Jesus is putting in order with this man's physical body how everything's going to be in heaven. He's saying, this is what my kingdom is like. No disease. He's declaring this. No healing spring was needed. No human assistance to carry someone somewhere. Just the word of Jesus. Jesus speaks healing into this man simply because he wanted to. The man did nothing nor had anything that would deserve this. He had no faith. Be careful about pastors, churches, and preachers who put a lot of weight into the amount of faith that you may have or not have towards being helped or healed. Be very careful. This man had zero faith, and he was perfect. His body instantly healed. Be careful how you handle such teaching. This miracle... To me, I see it as so much like creation. Just that immediate power. Just to speak it and boom, it happens. Just like the water and the wine. Remember, Pastor Jacob preached that. He turns water into wine. The grapes that made that wine, they never hung on a vine. They never had time to ferment. It was just wine. Done. Just because he can. The feeding of the 5,000, the multitudes... He fed them fish and bread, bread that never was grain in a field, fish that never swam in water. He just made it. Boom, right there. That is awesome, man. Never even thought about that before. He looks at this man. He sees his crippled body, his broken body. He says, get up, muscle, tissue, bone, strengthen on his way. Instantly. Without even touching it. He just said it. Different man on his way. Because Jesus is powerful. He's so wonderful. Notice here that, again, there's, there's no mention of faith on this man's part. 
That's important as we begin to move forward. The healing had taken place on the Sabbath. That's when, if we had a soundtrack, it would go, bum, 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 bum. Oh, no. Here come the religious Pharisees. I just read that in studying. And it's like, and at once the man was healed, he took up his bed and walked. Beautiful, right? <laughs> but then the verse, in verse 9, now that day was the Sabbath. Transitional statement leading into what's next. Verse 10, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. And it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. You see, you could be carried by someone if you were on the bed, but you couldn't carry your own bed on the Sabbath among hundreds of other rules. Sabbath was miserable here. But he answered them, he essentially blames Jesus, which points out again to his faithlessness in Christ and almost his shame. I don't get a sense that this man's free. Like many people that Jesus healed and were confronted by the Pharisees, they would brag on Jesus and defend Christ. This man is one of the very few, much like the nine lepers who never returned to say thanks. You see this man very similar to that. Almost in a Judas-type moment, turning Jesus in. This is strange. This is a weird type of person. But it fits what John's doing with the physical and the spiritual. See, the man got the physical, but he's not connecting it with the spiritual. He answered them and said, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Don't look to me, buddy. I'm just following orders. And he was a religious ruler. He was a rabbi, if I'm not mistaken, wearing a robe much like yours. You should take it up with him. I'm just following directions. Who am I not to follow a rabbi? You're a rabbi. I would obey you. He's kind of like that type of, this is type of thing that's happening here. Verse 12, they ask him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Commentary. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. The colonies, the nastiness, the pools. Verse 14, afterward, or the next day, the next day, Jesus found him. This speaks volumes of how personal Jesus is. Again, on the cross, Jesus is hanging there between two thieves. And he has a conversation with one inviting him into paradise. In such a moment of pain, he's still concerned about that guy right there on the cross beside him. He wants him in his kingdom. I love the personal touch of Jesus, even in his most excruciating moments of life. But here, very personally, he finds this man in the temple, not necessarily the temple. Don't, don't, don't go so far and think, oh, he was coming to give sacrifice. He's so appreciative. Commentators see this as just a temple area. It was a large, large court. He was just there. And said to him, see, you were well. Or literally, you're still well. Like, look, this didn't wear off yesterday. Assuming that there had been many people provide healings and it just be emotional and it wear off within a few moments. Jesus is saying, look, this is stuck. 
what I do last. And he says, very confusing phrase, without help from further study. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Here, Jesus is hitting at the man's need for righteousness. He still has not received forgiveness. He still has no faith. Jesus is saying, hey, bro, there's something worse than your sin coming. And it's the final judgment when the Son of Man will be over all. And he will judge all things. Make things right because something far worse could happen. That's the gist of what Jesus is saying here. Verse 15. The man went away rejoicing in the truth. Did he go away celebrating how wonderful Jesus was and telling the whole village and the whole village was saved? What did he do? After being healed and then the next day, Jesus finding him and teaching him a little bit more, he what? The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Again, no mention of gratitude, no mention of thankfulness. He is unmoved, indifferent to Jesus. I think this is pointing to unbelief. It's never mentioned again. Insight. This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. See verse 16? Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Persecuting, this growing hostility. All of their ridiculous legalism came to a pinnacle in their views of the Sabbath and their laws they created. It was absurd. Jesus wanted to address them at their most precious place of idolatry and leverage. Where? The Sabbath. How? Heal a man so that he can pick up his mat and carry it in front of him. You see his sovereignty? This is why I believe he has his mat. This is why Jesus tells him, get up, go on your way. I think it's why he says, get up, take up your mat, and go on your way. Because certainly there were other needy people who could use his mat. That would have been nice. But Jesus has him rolled up, take it with him, so that this, this conversation happens. Jesus is pursuing a confrontation with these Pharisees to address their idolatry. Later on in chapter 5, you see how he just moves on. We're going to get there in the next couple of weeks. But you're going to see how he just moves into their idolatry of the Sabbath. And how they've made a good thing, a horrible thing, an ultimate thing. Therefore, idolatry. They had made the Sabbath the most difficult, funless, unenjoyable day of the week. If you woke up on the Sabbath in this era, you'd be like, oh, I'm going to sleep all day. Wait, I can't sleep all day. It's a Sabbath. I have to get up. It's against the wall to stay in bed. What can I do? Well, you can't walk more than so-and-so paces. Oh, this is miserable. I'm going to pick up my bed and go for a walk. Nope, careful. You've got to be lame on the bed, someone else carrying you before you can take your bed. What can I do? I want to go eat some. Careful. I, wanna, I just want to go look at, can't, whoa, Careful. What can I, careful, don't ask that question. Like, this is miserable. This is what they had created. These Pharisees made it so impossible to enjoy the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for our rest. It was made for our enjoyment. This is what we so often do. We take what God gives as good things. Follow me here. Flooded with good things in America. And we make these good things ultimate things. And it becomes idolatry. 
So before we look at these Pharisees and poke too much fun, let's realize that we are much more sinful because we're not just the Sabbath. Boyfriend, girlfriend, computer. What type of computer? Car. How new the car is. Job. How much money you're making at your job. Like We find our identity not in the Sabbath necessarily, but in so much more. So let's be careful here. Verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father, whoa, he just talked about God. Wow. He named him his father. Let's kill him. My father is working until now, and I'm working. Literally, God never stops working. I, Jesus, never stops working. I always am. My sovereign plan never takes a break. My control over all never gets tired. My loving and forgiving never is quenched. I never rest. If I rested, this would cease to be. I keep all things in order. Because God and I, we're on the same team, kind of the same person. What? And that's what brought up this question. Verse 18, this statement. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, imagine, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Yeah, I mean, that's John's point. They got it. They get it, right? But that doesn't woo them to worship him. Because of their idolatry in their religious system, it causes them to miss him completely. Right answer, wrong disposition. It's a big deal. You see, the, the truth is, if God is above Sabbath regulations as the one who created them to begin with, so he's above them, Jesus is too. They don't get it. I want to wrap up with these three different dispositions, these three different types of people. Where do you fall here in this, these three different dispositions? Remember, we had the self-centered living, we had the self-righteous living, we had the Christ-centered living. You see the Pharisees there, self-righteousness, they were religious. They were moralistic. They had rules and regulations. Just absolutely miserable with all their rules, order, rules, order, self-righteousness. Then you have the lame man who represents a self-centered life, self-pity, marked and identified by pessimism. He's cynical. He's hopeless. Then you have the, the Christ-centered life, which is a life of living free. You're having peace, joy, unspeakable, guiltless, shameless. If your tendency here is to lean towards the self-righteous life of the Pharisee, you're looking past Jesus with your eyes on something else. You're missing Jesus. You're putting your hope in your goodness, the books you're reading, and how theologically deep they are and your MP3s and the podcasts of the sermons you're listening to, and the dialogues that you're having as you smoke your pipe, your religious moral performance, the self-righteous rules you've created for yourself and everyone around you that make you feel so wonderful when you can meet them. And it makes you feel 
horrible, crushed when you fail. I've had my quiet time for 42 days straight. Day 43, you don't have it. God doesn't love me anymore. Or you talk to somebody who's been doing it for 12 days straight. Yeah, keep, stay faithful. You can be good, man. You can just keep trying. You'll be like me one day. Or if they haven't had their quiet time in 12 weeks. Bad, bad guy. He needs faith. He's probably not even saved. See how you become the judge when you make the rules? And you always budge and give mercy when you mess up. When you don't, and when somebody else does, when somebody else messes up, you are the judge wearing the robe and the long hair and saying, guilty. You're nowhere close to as good as I am. Let me mentor you. Who are you to say anything to me? It's a dangerous place to be. If your tendency is to lean more towards the pitiful, cynical, lame man, like an Eeyore, you're placing your hope and your eyes on the things of this world, on possessions. If I could just get to that water, it's the physical, these relationships, these accomplishments, the status, the social status, money, approval from others for the healing that you know you need in order to be made complete and full. But you're missing Jesus. He's standing between you and your healing pool. And you're frustrated because he's blocking the view of your idol. He seems to get in the way of it. Jesus has what you need. He is the only source for what you're looking for. Healing, wholeness, new life, completeness, value, worth, beyond the physical into the eternal. Would you please fix your eyes on who is right before you? Jesus, offering you everything you need, joy, peace, fulfillment, wholeness, completeness, eternal life. Don't miss Jesus. Who do you say Jesus is? Not with your words, with your life, with your actions. Who is Jesus, practically speaking? Not in your head, in your heart. In your fear, your anxiety, your anger your lack of patience and grace towards others, your deliberate sin, your running to things of this world for your fulfillment and identity instead of Jesus. We must hear the gospel truth and return our eyes not to those things but to Jesus and realign our hearts with the heart of God and see Jesus Christ as Lord, as King over all, as he is the all-sufficient, powerful healer, savior, satisfier, completer, the God who loves me more than I could ever imagine and who has the perfect plan for my life, for my eternity, and who is in complete control over all things, always, and he's consistently on time. Trust that instead of your idolatrous pool, that if you could just get there and you're working your whole life away trying to get there, if it's that American dream, 2.5 kids, however that works in averages, that dog, that mansion, that yard with the nice pool, if I could just get that, if I could attain that, that degree, if I could just get that degree, or if I could just get that job, man, I could be, oh, that would be wonderful. 
and you're looking around trying to get past Jesus because that's really not the quickest way to the American dream. Jesus tells you to give up more than he tells you to be the most popular. He tells you to serve instead of be served. The whole American dream is kind of, doesn't really fit with Jesus in general. So if we could just move him out of the way, then I could have what I want. And what we're doing is we're, at, we're being asked by Jesus, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be satisfied? And he's standing right there. And we're pointing to something else. And we're missing the one who can do it for us. Unbeliever, those who are resisting Jesus Christ, who are stiff-arming Jesus Christ, if you do not consider Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, this morning, would you not be like that of the lame man? And miss Jesus. Would you see him? He is in front of you. Do you see him in this text? He has everything that you've been missing. He has everything that you've been looking for. He has the healing life. Spiritually speaking, more than absolutely everything else. And he can make you a new man, a new woman, right now, this very instant, regardless of your past. What if your past could not be held against you? And you could be made new. Consider your heart, this man's legs. And what if he just looks in and says, get up. Be on your way. But Lord, all this stuff, get up. <laughs> Done. Whole. Working. Complete. Shameless. Guiltless. Free. Peaceful. Just by speaking the word. Would you just say, Jesus, speak to me? Jesus, would you speak this into my heart? Would you just look at me and say to my soul, get up? And you'll feel that heart of stone just start going. Poof, 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 as he replaces that heart of stone with the heart of flesh. Yeah, that's why Jesus came. And John is writing this so that you would see him and not miss him. Would you look at him today and see him as sufficient, as wonderful? He is your solution. Would you confess to him this morning? Would you confess that you're needy? Would you not make excuses and say, well, if I could just get to that pool, would you just be honest and say, yes, I need to be healed. Yes, yes, I'm miserable. Yes, I know down deep inside I am not happy. And if this is all life has, I'm miserable. I'm going to hate the rest of my life. Be real. Be honest. Say, I've been so disappointed. I've been so hurt and wounded. Satisfaction, freedom. Are you kidding me? Do you even know this addiction I have? Freedom. That's not going to happen. I've been trying for 38 years to get freedom. Look at Jesus as he just totally bypasses your excuse and says, Get up. Roll up your mat. Go. Life is to be had. Life is to be lived. Get up. Confess your need for his saving power to come to you, release you from your sin, forgive you for your past, 
forgive you for the sins that you will commit. That's how great his forgiveness is. Be in awe knowing that you don't deserve it. And see him standing there wanting and waiting to give you everything. His perfect life can absolutely replace your life of sin, your life of shame, and your life of failure. You can be saved from the punishment that you deserve and from the hell that you deserve by confessing and believing that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he was hung on the cross and brutally murdered, receiving the punishment that you deserve. And you see this, that your sin deserved to be punished and that he took it for you so you don't have to, including your shame and your guilt. And to top it off, after all this, he was gloriously raised from the dead. He didn't stay dead. He beat death. So that we too have hope after this life. That's it. Do you see him as this? Do you see him as wonderful? He doesn't stand there to condemn the man of 38 years. And I pray that we would see that Jesus. Nashville needs that Jesus. Not the rules and regulations. Not the guilt of a past. We need Jesus to come and say, hey, enough excuses. I'm going to love you anyway. Get up. Take up your mat. Let's go. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Thank you for being so wonderful and revealing to me, and I pray to so many others, just in fact how wonderful and marvelous <laughs> you really, really, really are. God, continue to wow my heart with your goodness. I'm loving it. Lord, move in the hearts of these people. Would they be encouraged by this? Would this not be old hat, old news, yesterday's paper? Would this be magnificent truth? And will we receive it as such and live life to the fullest? Help us, Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.